Hello and welcome to Funny Business, a podcast for free thinkers. I'm Lockie Bradford. And I'm Robbie Hicks. On today's episode, we're lucky enough to sit down with the CEO of Snow Australia, Michael Kennedy. We talked his journey from professional athlete all the way up until becoming uh, CEO of Snow Australia. And he's been there for a while. He's done. He's not going anywhere, anywhere no, soon. No, no, he made that very clear. You ain't moving him. Um, but he's done, a, he's done some other stuff as well. He's been a coach. Yeah, and it was pretty cool to hear his story around. Uh, There's pretty exciting times being in the Winter Olympics during his, he coached Alyssa Camplin when she won Australia's second ever gold medal. And we got to hear the story about uh, when Michael was in the, in the, at the event watching from the sidelines to see uh, Stephen Bradbury come through and go through his qualifying events all the way up to the final and win the first ever gold. So hearing his story and talking about innovation in sports and how he's really creating pathways for the next generations of uh, athletes coming up to looking to be involved in um, winter sports. It's, it's a sick chat. Really liked it. Hey, and, and what? what else is doing? What else is a little something special to mention about Michael Kennedy? Oh, we've had his uh, partner, Shana Kennedy, his wife on the show before. Uh, she's a life coach. Uh, that was another amazing chat that we first had. First husband and wife duo. They were the first husband and wife duo. I'll kick it off. We're going to do an easy one. Locke's not, he's not happy with these questions anymore because we do it, the same questions start them all. But he gets bored, does he? He, he gets oh, he's just he. I made him do them for a while, and now I think he's just <laughs> sick of asking it. But Mark, thanks for jumping on. Uh, what's going on in your world at the moment? Well, it's uh, we've just come off the back of uh, a very interesting ski season. Obviously, the last lifts have just. Stopped turning uh, this weekend. Obviously, the first uh, first week in in October. Look, it was it was really um, a, a fairly unmitigated disaster, to be honest. Off the back of COVID, we've had uh, probably one of the worst seasons on record. The ski Victorian ski resorts never really were allowed to get going, and when they did, they were on such limited capacity that two of them closed down. And uh, Mount Buller fought on valiantly, tried to uh, tried to keep going, um, really just for regional customers because no one else could get there but in the end of the day they were forced to, to close down by the regulations and in New South Wales um, look they were able to operate really limited capacity um, but as far as our involvement goes and, and Snow Australia the, the organisation that I look after we're like the um, we're like the AFL or tennis uh, tennis Australia so we look after the sport and unfortunately um, you know, due to everything all the factors, the you know, regulations, the restrictions, we weren't able to conduct any events. We normally have 200 plus events. We had zero in 2020. So it was a bit of a disaster, but we got through um, as, a, as, a, as a team and as an organisation and um, we'll live to fight another day. That's insane. So 200 events down to, to zip. Down to zero, yeah. First time ever we've uh, run no events, but look, it was, it was understandable under the circumstances. It's funny, you know, as a sport, we are really, we're really reliant on having great partnerships with the resorts. And the resorts are all uh, you know, private, essentially private businesses and they're commercial businesses. And so we rely on, you know, on, on a lot of goodwill with them uh, to be able to run events and, uh, and take up the terrain and, and use, the, you know, use the staff and everything like that. And it, look, there's a win in it for the resorts. Absolutely. The resorts enjoy the events. It brings some publicity. It definitely brings people into the resort. But a season like this, uh, when you're such limited capacity, the, the, the notion of running events really goes down uh, down the pecking order. And so the priority goes down down the chain. And uh, look, unfortunately, wasn't able to have it. And, not, and 
also the fact that you're not allowed, we weren't allowed to have gatherings of any meaningful number. Um, so some of our largest events are um, around two, 3,000 people um, in the events. And so we couldn't hold those. And yeah, it's disappointing. But uh, as I said, we'll be, uh, we'll be back bigger and better next year. So uh, it must have been pretty challenging. There's a lot of sports across Australia and across the world at the moment. The sort of stuck. Some have been able to get back open. Some haven't. When does the next season kick off? When's the when's the next season meant to start? Yeah, well, look, I mean, obviously the the domestics. We are really operating two uh, two seasons: the domestic season and then the international season. Our domestic season really runs, you know, that sort of June through to uh, end of September period sometimes can you know dribble a little bit into October as it as it has this year up in New South Wales um, our international season normally starts in uh, in around November and that goes through till March that really coincides with the northern winter so look we're looking now about you know what again normally we would have quite a few hundred athletes and you know a lot of them with their families head overseas to the northern winters um, each each year and uh, they all participate in different programs and, and events right across the globe but this year that's really restricted obviously there's a travel ban so you know only those athletes that really are pursuing olympic qualification uh, they're the only ones really that are looking to get exemptions to be able to go overseas because as much as anything that's their livelihood it's their profession so um, we're we're working with the with the various authorities and governments to try to get exemptions for them but really you know once you go once you leave the country um, you've got to do it knowing that you might not be coming back anytime soon. So, and that's hard for, for everyone to get their head around. But um, again, just another challenge, I suppose. Do you, do you normally get to travel much? So in, the, in those, with the domestic season here and then going overseas, like you went to... You yeah, I've done, done a season um, in Golden, BC at uh, Kicking Horse. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so um, enjoyed my time there thoroughly. Um, plenty to do <laughs> over that in that neck of the woods. But um, I've I've been I've been lucky enough to I, mean, yeah, I went through. Uh, I've been involved in the sport. I've been lucky enough to be involved in the sport in one way, shape, or form my whole life. So there was a period there from the age of about uh, you know, eighteen or seventeen to about thirty, thirty-one, where I did twenty-eight consecutive winters. So fourteen years of of back-to-back winters. Um, 28, uh, 28 consecutive winters and just, you know, managed to ski on just about every continent uh, in the world, every sort of major mountain range from obviously, you know, far north up in Lapland in Finland, down through the Alps um, into, uh, into Asia and uh, all over. So I've, d- I've done, done a fair bit. So I don't, definitely don't get to go as much as I used to. But uh, having said that, I think I've had my fair share. Mate, what, it's time what, to go sit in the beach, I reckon. Oh, it's somewhere warm. No. It's a bit funny, actually, because after, after those 14 years, I... The first summer I spent back in Australia, I, I, I got engaged, and uh, at that stage, um, it was the first time I'd really spent a summer in Melbourne. I was like, it was like that movie Awakening. I don't know if, I think there's a Robert De Niro in that movie Awakening when he wakes up out of a coma after about 30 years. And it was like that. I, I sort of was walking around just in absolute awe of just going, how good is this? Is this happened like this? Is this like this every year? <laughs> is this summer thing that you speak of? So uh, I, I hadn't, uh, I hadn't, hadn't experienced a summer um, as an adult in a meaningful way so uh, it was it, it was and I still love my summers I'm a, I, I sort of a, grow very fond of, uh, of, of, the, of the summer months and spending time on the beach but um, no I wouldn't trade those uh, those 28 winters for anything. Do you, do you snowboard as well? The ski? Can snowboard um, uh, much to my kids surprise I think I've, I've, I've been skiing out with them a couple of times my daughter took up snowboarding and uh, so she started snowboarding I said I'll go snowboarding with you after she's done a week of lessons and she was like you can't snowboard <laughs> <laughs> of course I can so uh, we went out so I've, I've been out a little bit but uh, 
I think um, I, I love skiing. I actually love the act of skiing now um, as much as I ever have. I just love, I love the new technology of the skis. I love um, not, not a different type of skiing what I used to. I used to love you know, skiing moguls and powder and you know, backcountry and things like that. But I just love the big, wide, groomed runs, you know, at high speed, just, you know, just arcing out the turns. Uh, that's, um, that's sort of my style these days. Oh, I'm, I'm with you on that because I couldn't do any tricks or anything. So I just loved the, just the groom, the big wide groom, and I could just feel free to fall, you know? Feel free to, have your time. <laughs> feel free to fall. It scares me watching some of the skiers go. I feel like, how do yeah. their knees not buckle? Yeah. It's hard to watch sometimes. The yeah. Oh, look, yeah. The, the, well, the, the, the top skiers are incredibly strong, incredibly fit. There is, they are as, uh, as dedicated athletes as, as anyone. You know, you, we obviously often. Uh, are in awe of how fit AFL players are and, and soccer players yeah. and these other professional athletes that um, that we hold up to really high standards. But our our winter sport athletes are in every bit as good a shape, if not better, than a lot of those athletes. In fact, a lot of our cross country skiers hold the VO two mm. max records at the AIS. You know, so um, they're incredible athletes. Um, they they train very specifically for their sport, so very strong in the you know in the legs and the back and and so. Um, you know, when they're when they're hitting with such great forces uh, and from great heights, they're uh, they're they're prepared for it. Having said that, um, most athletes will end up in an almighty stack uh, at some stage, um, and so that's when you know, all the all the strength work comes to the fore. I've seen some some falls and it, yeah, I just think like because there's too many you know you got the two poles and you got the two skis, it's just shit going everywhere. Too, too much for Locke to think about. <laughs> <Yeah. huh? laughs> <laughs> like, how did you become the CEO of Snow Australia? You've been there for a while. Yeah, I've had uh, lo- longest of what I remember. Longest was, serving. Yeah, well, so certainly longest serving in, in in my sport and and now the longest serving CEO by some margin in uh, in all of uh, Olympic sports in australia look it's it's been an incredible journey i've got to say i'm, I'm like the kid that um you know grew up wanting to become an astronaut and then ends up working for nasa i sort of uh i i fell in love with skiing fell in love with the mountains and snow at a very young age um you know as far back as i can remember i think um i started on skis at the age of about two and uh and have loved it ever since i was lucky to grow up in a in a family that you know, that, that really loved their skiing. We were weekend warriors. We'd, we'd, we had a small apartment at Buller and would go up there every weekend. And, you know, just absolutely, it was my biggest passion and, and the number one sport that I loved. And I, so I started to compete at a young age and then um, took to it pretty, uh, pretty quickly. It was in the early days of freestyle skiing, so mogul skiing before it became an Olympic sport. And it wasn't very sophisticated. It was more hot dogging if you sort of, uh, you know, look up hot dogging on, uh, on YouTube and or hot dog the movie. It was sort of more like that at the time. It's a great movie, by the way. Um, it was more like that where you, where you really, uh, it was freestyle. It was wild. It was unpredictable. It was a bit random. And I, and I used to love that more than the structure of, of Alpine ski racing. So I'd really took to that, um, started competing, uh, sort of was pretty quickly became one of the better juniors in the country. And, and, uh, and you know, onto national teams and, and progressed in the sport right through um, to the World Cup level, skied a couple of World Cup events. Uh, and it really took until I got to the very highest level of sport competing at World Cup. Um, when I sort of really had that epiphany uh, and that moment, um, and I remember I was in Lake Placid, and Lake Placid is on the east coast of the US, very famous for being really 
really bitterly cold in winter, but um, I was at a World Cup event there and I was feeling really good in practice and I was skiing really well and everyone was sort of talking me up saying, oh, you know, you might make finals today. And I was thinking, oh, how good's this? And I remember on the day of the competition, it went from, you know, plus five degrees the day before, pouring with rain to about minus 25 overnight. And and the snow and the moguls um, froze to just, just bulletproof. It was like, they were like... Um, they were like uh, you know, Volkswagen Beetles, just you know, just down the slope and absolutely rock hard like concrete. And I, I absolutely shat myself. I, I just I, I was in that moment thinking, I can't I can't compete with these guys. The best guys in the world were making it look easy, and that was the difference. When the conditions got really tough in that circumstance, I just sort of knew I didn't have what it took to be the best in the world. So at that point, I was about eighteen or nine. I was about nineteen at the time, and I was thinking, well, I want to stay in this sport. I've got to find to find something else to do and I suppose that that was when I started to think about coaching um, got into coaching at a young age um, I started running I started running um, businesses and ski camps taking young Australian kids over to the US I think it was about um, 20 or 21 when I started that business and um, and to this day I still bump into some of the people that I took away um, who aren't that much um, younger than me and I said I cannot believe your parents would would send you away overseas and leave six weeks when I was 20 years of age. I mean, you know, being a parent now, there's no way I'd do that, but <laughs> something, uh, so there must be something trustworthy there. I'm not sure what that was, but moved from, uh, moved from, you know, running my own, own ski tour business to coaching to uh, being the team manager um, at the world cup level from, uh, from the 98 Olympics uh, through till 2002. And um then after the 2002 Olympics, we won the gold medal with Elisa Camplin. I was one of the coaches um, with her in that historic first uh, skiing gold medal. And then after that, the opportunity to apply for a CEO role came up. That was in uh, 2003. And, you know, I had no experience as a CEO and no experience in senior management, but I did have high performance and uh, a lot of sport knowledge behind me. And so... The people, uh, the right people backed me in and the, the right, and some of those people um, are still around now and still great mentors to me. And so I was able to learn the business side of it, um, uh, with it, it like almost on the job in many ways, but um, the, the, the passion for the sport and the understanding of high performance and, and what the sport needed in terms of its athletes and, and, uh, and how to build programs, I knew sort of intrinsically within sight within me. So that was kind of the basis of, of how we started and, and um, what is it, 18 years later, um, still going strong. That's cool. That's mate, <laughs> how good is that? You've been able to live, live your passion, live your purpose for ever since you were a kid. That's unreal. Well, I suppose you know, not many people get to do that and uh, I feel really fortunate that I've been able to. I mean, it hasn't been without its challenges and absolutely there's been moments when, you know, <sighs> I mean, it's, it, it, it was feral, like there's some of the politics that we had to deal with, um, you know, some of the uh, really sort of aggro that was out there um, at certain times as we were going through, you know, periods of significant change, really trying to change things. Um, there, was, there was a lot of uh, pent up, um, I suppose, anxieties and, uh, but, but you know, there's so much learning that I was, that, that came out of that period and those periods that, you know, having survived that and, get through to the other side of some of those really challenging periods in the sport. Um, absolutely. Maybe a better leader and more equipped to deal with the next ones as they came along. So I think some of these times that come along in any organization or any sport, when, you know, when the status quo is challenged and when, and when things are really changed and things are really turned on its head, 
I think a lot of people don't get to survive those 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 times and learn from them. But I've been really lucky that um that I have been able to, and I suppose each time, you know, slightly modify and change uh, the approach. And um, I think uh, we're I know we're in as better as good a shape now as as a sport um, as we ever have been. What are the, some some of the biggest changes you've seen over the over your time as CEO, like in in the sport and in the way, like obviously, um, like you mentioned, changes happen, some good things, some bad things. How do you navigate through that? Like, what what are some some of the biggest changes that have happened? I think there's been some some structural changes. Um, so a lot of sport in Australia is uh, built on a federated model and. I suppose most people in Australia wouldn't really understand the impact of a federated model and the power. And when I say a federated model, it's, it's the state associations um, sort of sit underneath the national body. But uh, in sport, uh, a lot of organisations are structured in a way that the state bodies control the national body. So the state bodies came around first to control the national body. So a lot of power in the state bodies. And, and that's okay. And there's a lot of passion, a lot of enthusiasm, but um, it means having a national vision and a national approach to something is a real challenge because um, it, it, you, know, you might have a national vision and if all of a sudden two or three of the states don't agree, that, that gets diluted. And you know, I was, as I was, I was about to say that most people in Australia wouldn't really understand the impact of that, but we're living it now. You know, we're living it now in the way that the politics, and I'm not a political person, but all I know is you'd sit there and you'd think, well, you'd think the prime minister would have control over everything that's happening around border closures and rules and things like that. But really uh, it's the, it's the state premiers that have all the control and all the say. And so that's what we look at what's happening in Australia and you've got all the different states and they look like different, the way people uh, are approaching uh, COVID and responding to COVID. It's like in different countries, you know, Mm. Victoria is like a different country from New South Wales. New South Wales is like a different country from Queensland and, and Northern territory. And, um, so imagine that in sport and you can see how the, the messages and some of the strategies and some of the approaches get diluted pretty quickly. So to come back to your original question, the biggest change that I've seen was bringing our sport into a single unitary organisation, one organisation, a national body that has um, operations in the various states, but, uh, but not controlled by the states. And so that in itself was the single biggest change and probably the catalyst for a lot of the success that we've been able to have because you have, you get, you know, you have a, a skills-based board, you get great people around the table, you have a good team, you can make um, informed and um, you know, well-educated uh, decisions and you can go forward and, and, and you're not sort of blocked along the way. So that was the biggest change. Um, the sport itself has changed immensely. You know, when, when I started, it was really only, it was alpine and cross country and freestyle skiing was the new kid on the block. And, and now there's snowboarding. Now there's all the new free ski disciplines, and um, it's it's a sport that has really um, exploded in terms of the the number of different events. So we used to have to look after three or four pathways or, or communities, if you like, and, and events. Now we've got thirteen. So you're trying to keep um, you know thirteen different communities uh, well informed. Um, you know. Try, try to provide as much um, support and expertise to those communities and, and, and provide, you know, we talk about pathways. Well, pathways is really, it's just information about how athletes, how young kids, a kid with a dream who's got some talent can get from being a junior through to the highest level and, and about tr- giving you know, the milestones and the various um, steps along the way. And so if you can provide that um, and do that in a really sort of, I suppose, a transparent way, then, then I think that's a good, a, a good sign of a good sport. 
hundred percent, especially if you're going through that and then you tell other people here about their experience as an athlete, you know, you understand what you can, yeah. you can empathize with them because you were, you're in their shoes. Absolutely. And I'm, and I can empathize with someone who was in a sport that didn't really have a pathway. I mean, when I came through the sport, it was very early days. And um, I look at it now compared to what it was back then. We didn't really have, we didn't really have a lot of coaching and even the coaches that were there didn't have a lot of experience. Now that wasn't their fault. That wasn't anyone's fault. The sport was new. It was young. It didn't have, didn't have the benefit of generations going through it and learning you know, the, the, the best way to go about it. So I suppose I reflect my own um, experiences when it comes to um, particularly with my team and my staff about saying, well, we need to really think about, this through the through the customer lens. We need we need to be able to sort of put ourselves in the shoes of the families, the kids coming through who who want to be who have been you know, had someone in their ear saying, oh, you know, little Johnny, he could be really good. He could go to the Olympics. Um, and you know, it's a matter of navigating whether the person who's telling them that a has the experience, b you know is not is not motivated by self interest because often it's a coach that will say, oh, you know. So, you know, give little Johnny to me and, and, uh, and, and we'll spend the money and, and, and I'll get into the Olympics. But you need to be able to provide really clear steps so that the parents and, an, and the average person who doesn't know everything can, can say, all right, well, look, yep, we're meeting those goals. Yep, that's the next step. This is where we have to aim for and so on and so forth. So, uh, yeah, I, th I think having that journey has put me in a good position to be able to reflect that back and go, well, what, what, what would I like it to be like if I was there again? I love that. Well, I feel awesome. like footy clubs should, you know what I mean? That approach is insane. Well, footies, they're a bit different because they've got every bit, like they're the opposite model. Every state's got their own little AFL Vic, AFL New South Wales, AFL Queensland. Mm. All the juniors feed up into that. They've all got different talent pools. It's the same sort of mm. different model, but I feel like there's definitely huge advantages of being a federated, like one voice, you know, one voice, one vision, one, like here are the pathways. You want to make it, here it is. Mm. Hey, what was your um? What was your experience like going from athlete to coach? How did you, how did you tackle that? Um, I I sort of again. I mean, I don't think I was a great coach, so I'd sort of put that out there. I don't think I was someone who who really um, took to coaching and you know, had a real natural um, ability to you know really absorb themselves in the science of it and in the in the technicality of it. I I. I enjoyed it. I felt like I could impart a message, but ultimately I knew it wasn't going to be my ultimate calling. It was for me, it was a means to sort of take a step to the next level. I, I really enjoyed the, the, the management and the program management side, the organizing, the logistics at that stage. It wasn't, it wasn't like, you know, um, oh, someone else organizes everything and you rock up to coach. You had to be everything. You had to be the travel agent, the organizer, the, you know, the, the accountant, the, um, you know, the logistics person, the coach, the videographer, and, uh, you know, the bus driver and the travel agent all in the same breath. So you had to do everything. And I, I enjoyed all those other elements. So I'd, I'd enjoyed um, those elements when I was, when I was running my business, taking young um, kids overseas. I enjoyed that, um, you know, the, the business side of that, putting the business plan together, the budgets, the communications with the parents and trying to do the sell, like selling it to them and, and, and putting the plans in place. And, um, and then you know, obviously the logistics around all of that. So I did enjoy that. And then obviously the coaching part was, was part of it. So I think I was more drawn to the, um, the business side um, and coaching for me was, was a stepping stone um, to get there. And so I moved through the coaching phase um, pretty quickly, that sort of technical coaching phase. Um, I did have a role when I was 
the, the, the team manager and high-performance manager with the Olympic teams. I still had a coaching role, but that was more of an assistant coaching role, um, less so than uh, a hands-on head, head coach role. What, what was your experience being around like, like high, we were talking about high pressure environments at the elite sporting level. We're talking about like high pressure situations and how they differ. You mentioned it before when you first got there at, at 18 and you're at the world, world cups, but being around these teams, being the high performance manager of the Olympics teams, like you're just around people who want to be the best. Is it just, is it inspiring to be around? It is. And I think you have to learn. I, th I think what you learn about high performance is that it's never, it's never one person who, who makes high performance. High performance is, is really, it sounds cliche, but it is a team effort. It, it is about a lot of people doing all the little things um, at the highest possible level and intensity to, to make it work, to have the athlete as the centre of the, the circle, centre of the universe, and, and making sure that everything that sort of orbits around them, whether it's, whether it's the strength, whether it's the medical, the physio, the nutrition, the, um, you know, the, the sports psych, all the different elements are there and in place and are the absolute you know, best of breed or the best that you can um, get your hands on um, to, to try to have um, that high performance outcome. So there's also, I think there's another really important element, which is being prepared and to make the big calls when you need when when you when you need to make those big calls often often athletes um, are very stubborn uh, by nature which is partly the reason why they become so good particularly the high performance athletes they're so single minded they're so focused but you know there is a time when you need to back your judgment and you need to uh, step up and and make the call um, about about you know what it is that needs to be done in that moment and i, I remember i was listening to um I was reflecting on a on a on a, on a, um, a situation which I found myself in and an, an experience which I had, which um, sort of came back to me when I was listening to a podcast when Adam Scott was talking about when he won the Masters and he's talking about putting and he's, he talks about that famous last putt when he it's almost getting it's almost dark and he's he knows he's got to nail this putt it's a long putt and he knows that he's got to nail this putt where if he's going to win and so he's speaking to his caddy and he's um, Steve. Um, uh, the New Zealand guy, Steve, he's the highest paid sportsman in New Zealand. Tiger Woods' is old caddy, is that the one? Yeah, Tiger Woods' old caddy. Yeah. Um, and he was uh, speaking to him and, uh, and he said, look, I think I'm going to hit this one cup to the right. Um, I'm pretty sure that's where it's at. And Steve said, it's two cups. It's two cups and maybe more. And so at that moment, that was effectively his coach, um, someone in that position who who had a very strong sense of what they needed to do and what they needed to be told, stepping up and making that call and standing, you know, challenging the athlete in that moment. And sure enough, you know, he hit the putt and almost went out to the left. So if he'd gone where he wanted to go, um, he wouldn't have made that putt and probably wouldn't have won the Masters. And I, I found myself in a similar situation, um, funnily enough, uh, when Elisa Campbell won a gold medal in Salt Lake City. So Elisa had uh, landed her first jump and my job, in, in that coaching situation, I was the top coach. I was the person that was doing a bit of the last minute sort of motivational speech. And then the main part of that role was about getting the speed right. And so these, these athletes go down um, off these jumps. I'm sure you, you've seen footage of aerial mm. skiing, but they hit the jumps, you know, 60 Ks an hour and they launch, you know, eight meters into the air. And, and they really need to, they really need to hit that jump within like, one kilometre an hour of what they're expecting. Otherwise, their whole rotation and everything's buggered. So they, they need to absolutely get that speed right. And so my job as the top coach was 
to really you know, watch the speeds, know what was happening, monitor the, the, the weather conditions, look at the other athletes and see what was happening. So Elisa landed her first jump and she, she came up to the top and, and we knew that if she landed her second jump, that she would pretty much guarantee, well, she was guaranteed a medal and would probably win the gold medal. And she was pumped up and she was amped and um, you know, she was feeling really good. And she's like, God, you know, I can, uh, I'm pumped about this. So I'm going to take a step up. I'm going to go a little bit quicker. I was like, and, and, I, and I said at that stage, I said, well, Lisa, you know what? I've been watching the speed. I've been watching the conditions. It's getting you know, a bit, bit darker. You know, it feels like it's colder. I think it's speeding up. In fact, I'll be saying, take a step down. I wouldn't be taking, and she's like, no, no, I'm going to take a step up. I was like, no, I'm arguing with her on the end. I'm saying, well, you know, I think you should maybe start from where you went last time. Definitely don't take a step up. So I'm taking a step up. And each step up is you know, two, two kilometers an hour, three kilometers an hour difference. It's the difference between you know, success and failure. And so we're arguing on the in run. And all, next thing I know, I'm looking and there's a countdown clock, which all the athletes have to um, you know, adhere. A bit like the footy, you know, the, the goal kicking clock. And if that, if that clock gets down to zero, you're basically disqualified. You have to go before it gets to zero. So we're arguing. And uh, that countdown clock's going. It's 20 and then it's 19, 18, 15. We're going, she's going, I'm stepping up. I said, start where you are. Start. Eight, nine. And it's counting down and she's 10 seconds away from being disqualified for the Olympics. And I said to her, I said, Elisa, if you ever effing listen to me once in your life, it's right now. Start from right here. Do not take a step up. And I think at that moment, the argument ended. Uh, she realised I was pretty serious. She started from right where I said. Um, she was quick. She was about a cake an hour quicker than what she wanted to be. She had to really stretch the jump out and, uh, and just landed it on the back of her skis. And of course the rest is history. She won the gold medal and, uh, and it was a life changing event. But again, I reflect on that moment and I think, Oh geez, if I didn't stay, if I didn't argue with her and if I didn't really stand my ground for what I believed in, in that moment, uh, that, that moment may never have happened. So uh, yeah, that that that's that to me is, a, is an example of where you're in high performance. You got to you've got to step up when it counts. Don't don't doubt yourself. But really, that was that's insane. insane. Imagine she didn't make the jump. Yeah, I know. She is would that, have hated you. Are you thinking about that at all? <laughs> well, she wouldn't have all. hated. She wouldn't have hated me because it would have been her own fault. <laughs> <laughs> I would have hated. I would have said, Lisa, I told you not to take a step." Up. She did. She started from where she. Uh, she started from from where she uh, needed to start from, and um, the rest is history. That was a big moment. That was that a was huge a... moment for winter sports. In Australian sport. Australian sport. Like I, that was the first ever gold medal, wasn't it? For, for It was the first. Well, Stephen Bradbury won the first gold the oh, night yeah. before. The night before, yeah, and that was. Um, I was. I was one of only a handful of Australians who were, who were in the building that night. I don't know if we've got time to tell this story, but it was. It was. Um, oh, 100 percent. Tell the story, mate. We're, oh, I love. I love <laughs> Stephen Bradbury. It, it was an insane night because I, I'd gone along and. Um, I basically snuck into uh, the section. I was with the Australian team, but I snuck into the section where all of the international bodies were sitting. So you know, I was sitting down there with um, you know, the, the guy who was the head of the you know, Italian Federation and the French and the British and the, and the Americans. We're all sort of sitting there and I'm in the, the team uniform. And, uh, and, and Stephen Bradbury had qualified 16th. He qualified last for the finals. And he was, you know, he was at the back end of his career and he'd had his share of bad luck in, in, in previous games. But I was sitting there and um, you know, the American was the raging favourite. And we're in Salt Lake City. There's 15,000 people. You never heard a noise um, like, like it when this guy, Polo Anton Ono was his name. Uh, and he came out, he's got his bandana on and his big sort of, you know, um, goatee. And 
looks every bit the part and the crowd's going nuts. And so the Americans are really confident he's going to win. So, you know, in, in the first round, the first round of 16, um, you know, they take off and, and, you know, they're going around and there's four of them and the top two progress through to the round of eight. Um, so they're going around and Bradbury's there and he's, you know, half a length off the back and he's, he's, he's going like a busted and he's, he's, he's going no good at all. And then sure enough, um, the two front guys take each other out. Uh, with with a lap to go, and the Bradbury's coming round. He sort of picks up the speed and st- starts skating through, and Wushka and he's into the top eight. Um, and so that so that all of a sudden, you know, there's a couple of the, couple of the guys there who can really upset because their guys got eliminated. I said, "Oh, Bradbury, he's looking good. He's going to win this." And they're all going, "No way, you're joking." So anyway, so the round of eight comes along, and uh, Bradbury's, uh, you know, they're out there going again. And there's four of them going around. And uh, sure enough, in the round of eight, the same thing happens. Two guys take each other out. Uh, the, I think the second and third place guy take each other out. Bradbury goes through again. He's half a lap behind. He goes through again, and he's in the final. And you're thinking, surely lightning can't strike three times. There's five of them in the final because there's not normally only four, but one of them got put through um, because you know, they got taken out. So there's five in the final. And, and you know everyone's seen the footage uh, and everyone knows the story, but they're going around and Bradbury, again, he's half a lap behind. He's... You know, he's he's, uh, he's he's just sort of almost going around, you know, looking at the crowd, and he comes around. And sure enough, you know, the last corner, four of them crash into each other. It's absolute mayhem and chaos. And Bedlam and Bradbury comes through, and he's got his arms raised in the air, and he wins. And I'm in the um, and I'm in the box with all these other. Um, with all these other nations and they're going, that's, that's, we've never seen anything like that. Surely there's going to be a rerun. I said, there's not going to be a rerun. Bradbury wins every day of the week. They said, no, no, if there's enough interference, the referee can, uh, can call for a rerun. Um, and but that's the referee's call. And I looked down in the middle and I thought, there's not going to be a rerun. Because the bloke who was the referee was the president of the Australian Ice Skating Association. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, there's nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Results stand. And so Bradbury went, uh, went into the books as the first ever gold medalist. That's off its head. I remember that moment, man. That was, that'll stick with me forever. And you were there. I was there. I was one of only a handful of Australians in the building. Uh, my my fiance, my wife, Shanna, was, was with me at the time. And we sort of reflect on that um, as just the most unbelievable experience uh, to be in the building the night Stephen Bradbury won the gold medal. And that was the night before Elisa did. So that was a hell of a 24 hours. That was a big yeah, 24 yeah, hours. Did you, I was going to say, you couldn't even go out and really celebrate, could you? Because you, you were working. You had the next day. No, no I, had to, I had to just, I left straight away, went straight back up to the village. And um, it was early. It wasn't late. But geez, I think there was, a, there was a massive party that night. Missed out on that one, unfortunately. As there should be. Oh, good vibes. There'd be good <laughs> vibes around the camp. Don't worry about that. It's dead. <laughs> Oh, and you did mention there, you, you are our first husband and wife duo on the pod. Yeah. I know. Yes. No. Uh, so uh, Shanna came, uh, came back raving. So she said, you've got to speak to these guys. So I said, I'd love to. Uh, if anyone wants to speak to me, I'd be happy to speak to them. So no, it was uh, wrapped to be the first uh, husband and wife team. I like that. And it was her birthday over the weekend. Yeah. Shout out. Happy birthday. Shout out. It was, yes. No, she had a, had a, had a all things considering, considering um, you're not really able to see anybody. We sort of uh, managed to... Have a few flybys and a few people sort of, um, you know, swing. Part. We've got a, we live next door to a, to an oval, so cut a few laps of the oval and um, a couple of quiet champagnes on the on the side. But uh, it was a good birthday. Um, would have been better if we could have had a party, but um, maybe next year. I like that. Rob, Robbie's just said, what, "What did you do to get in your good books?" That's what he's written. Any brownie there. points? Any brownie points? 
Good presents? Any presents? Oh, this, oh, well, I'll tell you what we did. We actually, <laughs> well, no, to be, um, it took a bit of organising, but we did organise um, uh, a, a very nice dinner on the night um, to just the kids. So, we've got, you know, we've got two kids, a 14 and 16-year-old, and they really stepped up. Um, and, you know, we organised a beautiful dinner and had it actually for the first night in about uh, six months you probably could have sat outside but we sat outside and um no, it was a magic night so uh, definitely in the good books definitely i got some credits for a little while that's for sure i like that you're in the good books too mate i am yeah and what have you done no i had my missus birthday over the weekend too and a-okay mate we're flying so yeah it's been a good couple of weeks surprise cake surprise cake got the freddo mm. cake out all good. I think I think any time you can pull off a surprise, anything, um, you know, you sort of you're, you're going in the right direction. That's not a bad tip. That's yeah, a good tip. Surprise! <laughs> a good surprise. Like a good surprise. Yeah. <laughs> All right, where are we at now? All right, innovation. It's such a, such an interesting sport because in Australia, it's it's hot. There's mm. places that there's snow, but there's not directly like it's not ready ready access to everyone and everyone in the community. So it's a mm. is that a challenge? being the sport that you guys cover, like how do you, you talk about the pathways, but how do you promote pathways from people? I guess it might be landlocked. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, there's a few things. I mean, I think, I think innovation is a word that is very prevalent in our sport and industry all the time. So you think a country like Australia with some of the, you know, the, the climate change uh, situation happening at the moment, we have to be more innovative in the way that we can make snow, um, retain snow and, and, and use the snow that's on the ground. So um, I think as far as an industry goes, some of the, some of the biggest innovations uh, are tested uh, and, and, and sort of um, find their way uh, from Australia. So for example, I mean, I think snowmaking technology has really come a long way. It used to be that, you know, the temperatures would drop to a certain temperature and at each resort, there'd be almost a, you know, a, a, a bell that would go off in the snowmaking hut and all the, all the snowmakers would jump out of bed like firemen and they'd race out of the snow and they'd sort of you know, turn on the machines and turn on the compressed air and the water and, you know, start making snow. And then they you know, might take them an hour, to two hours to go all around the mountain, turn them all on. And, and sure enough, the wind would change and five minutes later, it'd be blowing out water because it was too cold. They'd have to run around and, and turn them all off again. It was very, very labour intensive. But the, um, the modern snowmaking uh, machinery and technology now enable it all to be automated. So when the weather conditions are right, the guns all just turn on automatically and they can turn off automatically and they can be moved and, and, and set for in different ways. If it's, if it's colder temperature, they can blow more water to make the, you know, the snow thicker. And if it's really marginal, they just, you know, they can sort of wind it right back. So I think the snowmaking technologies improve. There's a snow sat technology they use now and basically if you're familiar with skiing there's you would have seen one of those big grooming machines that that are out there and they're out there in the middle of the night and they're out there sort of flattening everything and getting it all flat um, but an important role that they have is apart from just running over things and making it flat is they're actually moving snow around the runs to take it from areas where there's more snow built up because maybe because of wind or the you know the way it's been pushed during the day and moving it over to areas where there's less and what they've done in recent time is use um, satellite technology and they basically map out all the runs um, in the summertime when there's no snow and then the technologies in the snow grooming machines that uh, when they're in the when the snow's on the ground they've actually got a display which calculates how high they are off the snow compared to um, what the summer is so they can they know how much snow there is. it's a bit like a depth finder for fishing right so 
they can go out and they can see, all right, there's, you know, there's, a, there's a metre and a half of snow on this side and there's 50 centimetres over that side. We'll work here, we'll work it across in that way. So that's just another example of the technology that they're using. And they've got, you know, these kind of things happening all the time, um, which are enabling us to make the most of, of, um, of, of the snow that we have and the conditions that we have. That's cool. How cool is that? 100% tech people, like, you know, if you're into your tech and that's just, it's cutting edge, isn't it? It must be expensive though. You know, like the technology like that, but I guess it's not, it's not like heaps and heaps of locations across Australia. So that does it make it easier to put like in more innovative technologies and things yeah, like that? And I think that's got... the competitive advantage of each of these resorts. They look to, they look to um, certainly shore up their, um, their, their season. So they like to make sure that they can almost guarantee snow at certain times. And that requires the investment in, in this kind of technology. And then I suppose on a sport front, there's other innovations around how we're able to, um, to train and, and compete our sport when there's no snow. And so an example of this is we've just opened up this week, um, the first ever um, year round aerials training facility up in Brisbane. I saw so, that in the news. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so that's, that's been a long time in the making, but essentially, you know, Again, artificial surface, it's got a very similar feel to snow. It looks like snow. They come down, they go off the jumps, they launch into the air and then land in a swimming pool with um, aeration, which sort of softens the water. So, I mean, the aerialists can train on that year round and then transition that to snow very easily. And what we are also doing at the moment is we're in the process of uh, designing and building the first ever um, airbag uh, ramp in the southern hemisphere so that's in that'll be up in Jindabyne and again if you if you imagine a, a big air jump on snow where you sort of you know you come down it's 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 sort of the same uh, angle and speed and dimension of the jump but the landing is actually a giant airbag which is um, it's uh, 30 meters wide and 50 meters long it's the size of a you know it's a size it's like the size of a tennis court that you land on and it's on an angle and follows the, the same angle as what you would land on um, on on snow, so we'll be able to jump year round in Jindabyne. In fact, it'll be the only place in the world where you can jump on the airbag in the morning and then go up and um, test it out in the afternoon on snow. So that's 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 coming online early next year, and that'll be um, that's another um, a great piece of innovation that we're working on. How good is that? I, I really think that athletes you get to practice their skills over and over again. It's like people the, moving into the community. People moving. It's like the surf park that's just opened up in Tullamarine, and mm. I look at the the wave pools that are coming up across the world in, in surfing as a sport, you think, well, how good will the juniors be if they can get more and more practice time? They can do the same tricks over and over and again until they get it. I assume that's going to be the same sort of thing now that you've got these facilities set up is like the pathways to be created for junior athletes who now have the ability to practice, have the ability to have hands-on coaching and practice the same skills. Well, it's attractive too to, to want to do the sport. Well, at the high performance level, you know, you've got... Um, you know, you've got some of our best surfers and our up and coming surfers who, you know, I've, I've been up to the, um, the high performance center up in um, uh, Northern New South, Casarina up in Northern New South Wales, where Surfing Australia is. It's, it's an amazing facility. It's got, you know, it's, it's got a great setup and we're looking to build something similar um, in Jindabyne. But you've got athletes uh, in speaking to their high performance people who obviously before COVID would, would fly down from the Gold Coast uh, with their surfboards to train in Melbourne um, because they could get the repetition, they could work on some really specific skills, the, the, the technology, they could dial up whichever kind of wave, um, you know, suited the skill that they were working on. And as we move towards the Olympics, and obviously surfing is an Olympic sport, you'll see, I think potentially maybe the next Olympics, you might have um, a surfing 
event in a wave pool. And so what, once that happens, then obviously people are going to really start to practice the very specific um, waves um, that will come out of the machines. And so obviously, you know, there's one element, which is obviously, you know, a lot of people who surf and I don't surf, but you guys probably surf and will probably go, well, that's not really what surfing's about. But at the same time, the way that they will progress the sport and the innovation and, and what they'll be able to do on a surfboard, I think will be mind blowing. Oh, 100%. Oh, pro wave pools. Pro yeah. wave. I think it's the difference the same, like skateboarding is a sport. And you mm. know, well, skateboarding, they've got ramps, they can go out there and practice and their, their whole thing, their whole, <coughs> like the culture around skateboarding is just like go out there and smash yourself until you land the trick. Mm-hmm. Whereas something like, like if you're in the snow, well, if it's not snow and there's no snow, well, you can't play. If you're out surfing, there's no waves, you can't surf. You don't get to practice. Yep, yep. that's right. That's right. It's, just, it's sick. I can't, I'm excited to see all the athletes coming through and it's going to be, it's grass for the sport. No, it's fantastic. And I think, you know, the, the new disciplines really are sort of more youth orientated. And I think that's what, I think that's really what the Olympics are trying to do. And I think, you know, to their credit, they're doing everything they can to kind of break the, the mold of the old sort of Greco Roman wrestling and the, um, you know, some of the older, um, you know, more traditional Olympic sports and trying to bring new sports in. You know, I know the summer games in Tokyo when that, when they get around to having it next year will be, you know, they've got, you know, BMX, um, freestyle BMX, they've got skateboarding in there, you know, um, uh, surfing, obviously, uh, rock, speed climbing is another one. So they've got these new, these new um, disciplines and new events, which I think, you know, attract a, a much younger audience. Well, talking about no, one's, no one's tuning into hammer throw, you know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Shout out to them. Well, I, don't I don't mind a bit of hammer throw, you know. It's sort of, you know, every now and then you sort of get that, they get, they get pretty fizzed up and then, um, you know, you never know where that thing goes. I mean, there's always that famous one with the guy, um, you know, with the, the javelin, the guy that gets... <laughs> <laughs> yes, mate. It's ping with a javelin. That's, uh, you always sort of sit there thinking, oh, maybe that could happen. But um... well, One thing I did notice, that I, correct me if I'm wrong, at the last big, at the last Olympics were... Sponsors allowed and like earphones and that allowed for like snowboarders. Is, is that right? Well, not so much sponsors. I mean, the, the, the whole Olympic model is, is built around the fact that the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, have a family of sponsors that are fiercely guarded um, uh, for good reason around the Olympics. And that's because they fund the Olympics, basically. Um, so, no, athletes aren't able to have their own sponsors. But they, as far as headphones go, yeah, they're, I mean, they're free to use headphones. In fact, you know, most... Most, uh, most of the sort of the park and pipe athletes, the sort of the, the, the sort of new generation of athletes, including Scotty James, who's a, who is um, you know an incredible athlete um, that we that Australia can has at the moment and can be very proud of, um, listens to music. So I, I mean I could never get my head around. It. I don't know how you could sort of concentrate with music in your ear, but these guys seem to do it. And you know where they're taking these sports and and the acrobatics that they're doing is unbelievable. It's next level, and I just um, you know, are full of admiration for for what they do. And, you know, someone like Scotty James, he's kind of, if you follow him on Instagram and, you know, he lives the lifestyle and he all looks, you know, it's all, everything's all sort of funny and it's, you know, pretty laid back. But he is a serious, serious athlete um, behind all of that. And I think in many ways he likes to portray that he's, you know, this kind of, you know, easygoing guy that doesn't take it all too seriously. But, um, you know, underneath he is um, fiercely competitive. He's, what, how did he go at the last... What? Was he the world champion? Did he win world champion? He's, he's won the world championship three times in a row. So he's three-time world champion. And he was bronze medal at the Olympics. So um, he was, uh, yeah, real head-to-head battle with uh, with Sean White 
at the Olympics in Pyeongchang and, um, and the Japanese rider as well. And so, um, look, you know, Scotty, he had his chance to win, no doubt, at that Games. And, he, and I know that ever since that moment, he has uh, been absolutely fired up. In fact, went on about a year and a half or two, almost a two-year win streak where he was undefeated. So he is um, very focused on the next Games and um, uh, in Beijing in uh, February 2022. And he would be uh, the shortest price uh, you could get to, to win a medal on the day and, um, and certainly uh, a good chance for gold. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. Well, we'll get it done. It's not that there's no pressure. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things that are in his favour. One, he's, he's an unbelievable athlete, so um, an incredible competitor. But the nature of that event also, uh, the format lends itself to somebody who's got the best skills winning on the day because they get – it's a best of three format. So they've got three chances to put down their best run. And in many ways, that's, that's what leads to the progression of that sport, to really – you know, enabling the athletes to push really hard and push their limits because they know that if they make a mistake, they'll get another chance to do it in the final. So um, what I'd say is that he's become an incredibly consistent rider. He's, he's, the, he's got the highest level and degree of difficulty out there. So if he's got three chances to put one down, um, I'd be pretty confident he'll put one down. And if he does, then he'll, um, he'll, he'll, he'll be hard to, um, hard to beat. I like that program sort of way you think about it. You know what I mean? In terms of the event and how the three chances, like how does, how does that all happen? Like how does that come about? Like when you're putting together that for like the Olympic games or like, you know what I mean? Like how, how is it, how are you going to judge it? What, what's the metric on how many chances you're going to give them? Do you guys sit around the table and. Yeah. Create, well, there's yeah. creating new sports. Yeah. yeah. Creating new sports. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's combination. I mean, it is driven, a lot of it's driven by the sport, a bit of it's influenced by television too, about, you know, how, how the format works on TV and, and how it works within a defined time slot. Um, I know that because I actually sit on um, one of the executive committees uh, from the International Federation and so I represent Australia on that committee and, and we oversee a lot of these rules and, and, and things that come into place and I know that when it, with, with these new disciplines they are unwavering in their uh, belief that to have multiple runs like this um, is enhances the progression of the sport so uh, it might be more dramatic to have one run, winner take all, but um, in terms of trying to progress the sport, uh, the best way to do that is to have three runs. So yeah, it, it's definitely a negotiation um, in terms of how you come up with a format for the Olympics, but ultimately it's driven by, it's driven by um, well, the athletes, but then it's also driven by television and, um, and the organisers. Three runs means that no one needs to play safe. You don't have to play safe. That's right. And the only downside of three runs is, you know, you, you could have a person that potentially wins with their first run. Um, and then that score holds up for three rounds of the finals. And, um, you know, and then they sort of do what's called a victory lap, which is the last run is just sort of coming down without having to perform. But that's not what happened in Pyeongchang. It was the, one of the most extraordinary um, finals uh, that I've, ever seen i was there i was lucky enough to be there with channel seven and was sort of standing right at the bottom of the of the half pipe and you know scotty was in in uh in third place um and he got that score in his first run he didn't quite nail his second and third run so that score held up the japanese rider in his last run came down had an incredible run and put himself into the lead and sean white who was at that stage a two-time gold medalist and had uh you know really been out of the sport for a while and come back um, and he put down, you know, the most unbelievable run in that final run under all that pressure to win and delivered. And so 
that moment was uh, that was that was an incredible incredible uh, moment to witness to see someone like Sean White come out and do what he did um, under so much pressure. That would have been cool to watch. He's like a rock star, isn't he? Yeah, he's in a few movies. Movies in a band. He doesn't. He's off his head. It's interesting. I mean, he's a guy that, um, you know, wasn't that well liked amongst the snowboard uh, fraternity, only because of the fact that he was one of the first guys to take it really seriously. You know, he he was one of the first guys that was so competitive that just wouldn't accept losing. wasn't just you know happy to be there and and you know part of the scene. He was absolutely hell bent on winning and being. being number one and so um he uh that that attitude that sort of real high performance just win at all cost attitude didn't sit well with that sort of um that community early on but i think what they're starting to see now is that you know as sports mature as they progress that's where they all that's where they always end up going you, you can you can hold back the tide for so long but when you've got things like olympic games and you've got money on the line and you've got all these um accolades and and uh, and um opportunities uh, inevitably uh you've got to take it seriously and so that's it uh, in it to win it you build your yeah, career absolutely. Build yeah, yeah, yeah. was that a bit like is that the same i could i know that's, I, I refer back to surfing it's like a lot of people look at the surfing tour and be like oh like it's too competitive it's not the spirit of surfing it's meant to be just whatever is it the same in in sports like that when people try and compare it to like olympic sports when they're new and going oh is it taking the essence away of just going out there I to think have so. fun yeah absolutely it's exactly the same i i think a lot of these sports have have struggled with the evolution coming from um, being a, a new extreme action sport, you know, fresh off the block to becoming, you know, more mainstream. Um, and by the Olympics, you know, if, if, you know, if that's the definition of mainstream, but I think you sort of got to take the good with the bad a bit. I think you've got to take all the good things that, that the Olympics um, and these sort of major events bring the profile um, you know, the opportunity to represent your country at that level. And, you know, there's a compromise against perhaps some of the, you know, the core elements that a lot of those, um, those athletes seek or they feel they're losing. So um, I think it's more perceived than real. Um, but these, you know, a lot of the pioneers of these sports feel like, you know, they, they, um, you know, they, they have led the charge and perhaps they don't feel as, as relevant or as, um, in control when uh, when the sport moves to the next level. So right. You've been there for a long time. I want to talk about getting a go at being a commentator. Yeah, well, that was wild. I, I'd, um, I'd, I'd sort of done three Olympics as, um, three or four Olympics as a, as a coach and as, a, as an official and a high performance sort of um, um, team manager. And when Vancouver came around, I decided that I didn't want to be, I wasn't going to be with the team anymore because by that stage I was already, um, already CEO and probably not working with the athletes and programs as much as, as what I used to when I was obviously involved with the team day to day. So I did have an opportunity to, uh, to put my hand up and commentate. And that was the last of the, uh, the big spending um, productions. That was channel nine and Foxtel and they flew you know, all of their best talent um, out to Vancouver, which is just one of the great cities of the world and put us up in five-star hotels and we had whining and dining and it was unbelievable. But um, I was working with, uh, with Eddie Maguire um, in the lead up to it. And so I was doing the ski cross events and a couple of other events. And so we'd done a bit of practice and whatever. And, um, you know, Eddie is, you know, for all of the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the things about Eddie and the times he sort of puts his own foot in his mouth or he sort of puts himself out there for and up there for criticism. He is 
one of the most hardworking, intelligent, professional people I've ever met. He, his, his ability to retain information, his enthusiasm for this project, which was commentating an event he'd never commentated before. I mean, he, would, he was absolutely throwing himself into it. So you know, I learned a lot from him to be able to, um, you know, to in, in, the, in the weeks that we spent in the lead up to the games, I'd go over into his office and we'd sort of sit there and practice commentary and, and he was really into it. And so um, he was obviously one of the, the main talent for the broadcast and he was you know, hosting the opening ceremony with, uh, with Layla McKinnon, who's, um, you know, who's, who's a very talented, uh, very talented presenter as well. And so they were the, doing the on-air hosting of the, of the opening ceremony. And um, about two days before the opening ceremony, Eddie pulls me into the office with the head of the, um, head of the broadcast and says, um, oh, you know, how are you going? Are you enjoying yourself? I said, yeah, you know, it's been good. And, I, and I, at that stage, I'd spend a lot of time around the, the production sort of hub there, helping people out, just you know, trying to explain all the different sports and what was going on because, you know, a lot of them didn't have that much experience and they go, oh, look, we know we think you're doing a great job. And, uh, um, you know, how'd you like to commentate the opening ceremony? And I was sitting there going, yeah, absolutely. Now, I mean, I'd never, never done television before. And the opening ceremony is watched by about 3 million people. So, I mean, of course, say yes was the natural response, but then, oh shit, what am I, am I going to do this? You know, that was, that was the secondary response. So um, they said, well, Fantastic, great. Um, the rehearsal is, you know, in two hours. We'll pick you up out the front, uh, you know, in the car, and we'll take you down. I'm like, oh, I've got to cancel my plans, and so we go down to the rehearsal, which is um, basically the, the the rehearsal. It's a full dress rehearsal. The only thing that's that's different is some of the dignitaries are sort of um, represented by volunteers. So you know, it might be one Antonio Samaranch or Jacques Rogg or whoever the official was, or the Prime Minister of Canada, and and you know, there'll be some volunteer in a blue jacket holding a holding a sign for the purpose of the opening ceremony, but, you know, Prime Minister. Um, and then they do the march, the athletes march, and again, it's all volunteers coming out. So it's all about, um, uh, you know, absolutely to the last detail, rehearsing and preparing everything. The commentators, the camera people, the performers, everything. So we're doing this rehearsal, and I'm realising that I'm looking over, and Eddie and Layla have got these scripts that have been written out by the, you know, the IOC and they've got them and, and, you know, and yes, and now this scene, this is the, you know, this is the, um, the orcas uh, in it's, rep, you know, it's representing the orcas, the whales in the Vancouver Harbor. And this is the spirit of the indigenous whatevers. And so, you know, they're reading off the script about everything that's happened. And then they'll, so then they'd throw to me and they go, okay, and uh, here come the athletes. All right, uh, Michael, take it away. And I'm supposed to be talking about uh, here's Austria and here's Azerbaijan and here's <laughs> Afghanistan and here's all these athletes. And I had no notes. I wasn't given anything to, to um, no preparation whatsoever. I think it was assumed that I knew every athlete from all three ever, <laughs> ever, ever, from every country. So I spent the next two days um, awake on Red Bull, uh, researching every single country, and you know who was the you know, who their stars are, who their flag bearer was, to the point where we came out on the day and, uh, and um, was able to know just enough to pull it off. And so um, I think that was an amazing experience um, to, to commentate uh, the opening ceremonies, your very, very first TV gig ever. Um, it was one I'll, uh, I'll definitely remember. But again, you know, it's just another one of those things. I think you put yourself out there, you say yes to every opportunity. Um, you know, sometimes it can go pear-shaped, but um, you know, in situations like that, it was... A great, uh, a great platform to do other things, and obviously, yeah, an experience I will never ever forget. 
I like that. Go yeah, jump in the deep end. Thrown in the deep end. You're looking around. Where are my notes? Yeah. <laughs> no notes. He no notes. <laughs> notes? No. No so notes. What are the, what are the next steps for you then, moving forward? Sounds well, you know, I, I I mean, I I I struggled for a little while with my tenure. I think I, I was thinking, oh, I've been at this job a long time. What am I going to do next? And I look around. I think, well, why isn't you know, surely um you know. There's a re- what, what, what's wrong with me? What, how come I've been in this job for so long and no other sports have? And then I re- sort of have come to terms with the fact that you know I think I'm actually really blessed that I've um, I, I'm in a in a role that I'm you know so passionate about. I, I love the sport as much now as I ever have. Um, you know I, I I've got a great team um, that I work with and they're really committed and passionate. I think I've got a really supportive board um, and I think. The, we, we continue to, um, to have really ambitious goals and really achieving a lot as a sport. Um, and I think, you know, first and foremost, and probably most importantly, I still find it really fun. And fun is a big motivator for me. I'm really motivated by, um, you know, by, by the enjoyment of the role. And so while all of those things are in place, I'm actually pretty comfortable uh, in, in, in being in the role because there's so much more to do and, uh, and there's so much passion for it still. So um, I don't know how long it's going to, how long it's going to go for. I think someone once told me there's a start a middle and an end of everything. And I don't know whether, you know, I'm in the middle or the end, but um, I did read with interest that the Austrian ski federation um, CEO has just resigned uh, or just has just um, retired um, this week after 43 years as CEO. So um, I've got a bit of time. I've got a bit of time. I think it might just be the start. By the sounds of it. it might be the middle, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's all Well, mate, thanks so much for spending your afternoon and having a chat with us. It's been so good to pick your brain. Absolute pleasure. Pleasure to join you guys. And, uh, you know, look, I, I love what you're doing and uh, I love your sort of relaxed approach to it all. And um, I love hearing the story. So thanks for having me on. Another great chat in the bank, Rob. Michael Kennedy, he's doing some, uh, some good things in the, uh, in the snow world, isn't he? Hey, I haven't even really even been to the snow. Oh, mate, you're missing it. It's off its head. What do you mean? Why? I've never been. Never got the opportunity. I've never been snowboarding. I've never been skiing. Kathy, I've Ash. never thrown a snowball, you know? Oh, my God. You're not even a toboggan. I can see you on the toboggan. Never even been on a toboggan. That's a bit... You're missing out on life a little bit. The snow snow season's a fun season. You know what I mean? It's, it's the stuff off the field as well that's uh, quite enjoyable. So um, you missed out a little bit on that. But, hey... It's not too late. I feel like uh, now we're friends with, with Michael. I feel like we've got a pretty good hook up there. So You'll know someone who might be able to give you some lessons. You know? <laughs> I was thinking jacuzzi on the oh. mountain type of setup, you know? Fair enough. Hey, if you like this chat and you've, you've liked other ones and you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It means a lot to us and helps us out as we try and grow this podcast to bigger and better things. We, we actually look at the subscriber list every day. So when you do, um, we know your name and we really appreciate it. And, Without you, we're nothing. Peasants. We're peasants. See you next episode. See ya.